having fun doing this. We had another great, great uh, podcast last week with Chrissy Poland. Uh, make sure you go check that out. JoeGaretti.com slash podcast. Uh, this is number six of the Drumming Career Podcast. I have another amazing guest I am super psyched to have and talk with today. He is a New York City legend. He's been around there for a long time playing with a variety of people, uh, including Hall & Oates, Average White Band. Uh, he's the house drummer at Showtime at the Apollo, as well as live from Daryl's house. Here he is, folks. Brian Dunn. Brian. Hey, man. There he is. How's What's it going? Happening? Good. Good. Good to see How you. How are you, man? I'm all right. Same Thanks. here. Thanks for doing this. Psyched. Nice. So um, where are you coming at us from today? Uh, Ronkonkoma, Long Island. Ronkonkoma, Long Island. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Long Island. Very close. Now, you're from Long Island originally, right? I am. Okay. That had to be cool growing up uh, close to the city, right? Yeah, basically lived an hour from Manhattan my whole life. Okay. So mm -hmm. when did uh, when did music come into your life? Um, super early. I have two brothers, two older brothers that played. Um, when they were teenagers, one played guitar, one played drums. And uh, so there was band rehearsals in the basement of my parents' house multiple times a week okay, so i was so kind of just in it absorbed it sort of yeah mm -hmm. cool and uh was drums the first thing that jumped out at you or did you try something else drums the only thing the I've only thing yeah that's the answer man that's the answer so about how old were you when you started taking playing drums um i would say probably wow um how old are you in third grade about seven eight something yeah probably that probably around there okay cool and you just picked them up and started playing or did you take start taking lessons at that time i, I started i mean there was always drums in the house so i was just play i would mess around with them and my brother very at a very early age he immediately jumped on me and started giving me lessons teaching okay. me how to read and the whole thing yeah so right so i was like right off from eight nine years old you were reading and, and learning from, yeah from your brother Cool. Yeah. Does brothers still play? Both of them. The, the guitar player became a drummer. Okay. Um, so they both play drums, but they, they both stopped. They both stopped. They, but they stopped. They don't play yeah. at all anymore, not even for fun? Okay. Not really. Okay. So uh, it runs in the family, clearly. The rhythm runs in the family. That's in your yeah. DNA. So uh, you started doing it, and it's it, it stuck. So you kept on going, and uh, did you do it like formal education, like high school? Or yeah, I... Basically, when I was when I was fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade, around that time, I took lessons with a guy named Al Miller, who out here on Long Island is he was like he's the guy he was the guy if you were you know if you were serious about playing he was definitely one of the guys you would go to. Um, so, but I used to go take lessons with him every weekend, and there would be two drum sets set up, and he never let me touch the drums. It was just reading. It was reading, playing on the pad, getting technique together, and. Um, but I would go home and then I would just play drums all week. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, I mean, my, my reading ability by the time I was in sixth grade was what it was when I was in college. Like literally it was the same repertoire I was doing because anything my brother did, I was just doing by default. Mm -hmm. So my brother's seven years older than me. So, you know, when I was in sixth grade, seventh grade, I was reading out of the you know, the, the Albright book and the Pedemsky book and, you know, all this stuff that you see when you're in, when you're in school after high school, you know? Um, but I mean, I definitely wasn't reading charts or anything. It was just snare drum repertoire. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely, I feel like I had a good mix. I had, I had, I had a, I had a teacher in those years and Al Miller that was serious about the reading thing. But then I had my brother who, who was, always a reader as well but his thing was let's just drop that needle on the record and use your ears yeah that's it so that's all i did and and he would also he was he was both both my brothers were so into music that they anything that they got into they got deep into it so when they would go through their phases of music 
it would be, you know, when they got into, when they discovered who Shaka Khan was, it was like, wow. And then they went out and got live, live at the Savoy, Rufus and Shaka Khan, you know, and, you know, or when my brothers got into Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind and Fire, it was like, they'd really get in there deep. So I was the recipient of these guys bringing home records right. and just being like, that's what you do. So uh, yeah, I was it's lucky. A, yeah. It sounds like, um, a lot of R&B, a lot of funk, soul music was happening. In yeah, yeah. It start, you know, to be honest with you, it started with the, my earliest recollection of playing and hearing my brothers. They were bad company guys, bad okay. company, you know, bad company, Zeppelin, um, Ronnie Montrose. Um, that was the that was the thing for them. But yeah, it, it very quickly the R&B thing came. And then, my, of course, my brother, Kevin, who continued playing drums into college, he got into, he went through a huge Max Roach, uh, you know, a time where he was really, he was coming home with the Max Roach and Clifford Brown records. So we, and and the way he followed it was, I did, and I'm, you probably did the same thing, and a lot of drummers I know have, you you discover, I was discovering the, the straight ahead thing in a kind of backward, weird kind of way. So I was listening to, I was listening to Max. I was listening, no, I was listening to Tony. Like we, my brother discovered Tony before he discovered Max, which is like kind of backwards, you know, yeah. but we all, you know, you, you work your way through it, you know? Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that like for you when you first were exposed to that kind of drumming after like hearing all the pocket stuff, did you take to it right away or were you kind of like, I, I didn't, man, to be perfectly honest, man. The Same first, here. yeah, the first time I heard it, I liked it. But when I would hear, when I would hear the, like, like I was listening to, to, to Chicory Electric Band before I was listening to like <laughs> real straight ahead, right? Right. So, so the problem was I'd put on a bebop record and the time wasn't absolutely tight and, and it, I was bewildered by that and I wasn't grown and I wasn't mature enough to realize that it's a different feel and, and you, those guys are feeling things and big shot and phrases and it's not this, you know? Right, so right. Um, I had to just grow up and, and get, wrap my head around it. Yeah. Same here. I feel the exact same way. And it's the same record. It was uh Chick Corea electric band and Weckl, you know, is doing all the stuff. And of course, I mean, his, it's stupendous. He's killing. Absolutely. Amazing. <laughs> but when you, you know, you talk to the old school jazz guys and they're like, ah, those fusion guys, you know, they're playing that stuff. And that's yeah. that was the first thing that I heard. And I remember hearing Elvin Jones for the first time and being like, oh, this is awful. This guy's all sloppy. His time's all over the road. And now I'm like, oh, my, what was, I just couldn't fathom what, what was happening at the time. You yeah. Know? But it's yeah. Interesting yeah. To talk to drummers that came up the pocket way and and then heard that and what was the first thing you you know you felt when you heard bebop for the first time and it's really yeah it, it tends to be a similar uh story that's a trip okay so now we're uh you're you're plugging along you're studying with al miller you said was his name yeah mm -hmm. in Long yep. Island. and uh and you're got your brothers uh when did you start playing with other cats um i was never playing with I had no one to play with like in high school. There was no one, there was no, no one was making bands at that point. Like my brother's generation, I think was sort of the last generation where that was happening a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and at least where I went to school, it wasn't a lot of guys playing, like go, running home from school to jam. Like I wasn't part, and if that was happening, I, I wasn't part of it. But by the time I was 14, maybe, yeah, 14, I joined, I was in a wedding band. My father used to drive me on weekends okay. to do weddings yeah yeah so i was like in i was in 10th grade doing it playing weddings on the weekends wow so yeah so my luckily again my brothers my my brother kevin was doing club dates right out of high school so as soon as i was like as soon as he realized like oh he can play he needs to start playing with people and and so he got he got me an audition with in a, in a for with a wedding band and I was like this little kid playing at a wedding band, but the money was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know it. It's and for for uh, for that age, you must have. I remember getting, you know, like fourteen. I just wanted to get a paper route to make seventy five bucks, but you're making yeah. like like decent decent bread yeah. wedding gig. That's a trip. So you obviously stuck in uh, wedding bands for quite a while, because that, that's kind of where our paths crossed years yep. later. Yeah. So, 
and again, I always say this, this is like the, uh, the dirty little secret of the, of the music, uh, the working musician's life, you know, weddings, you know, at least when I was a kid, I never dreamed of playing weddings. And then when I got older, right. I was like, okay, well, if I want to pay my rent in New York city of it, you know, it was like, we weddings. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so cool. So, all right. So now you're playing around town, and uh, you, were you in like a, a steady wedding band, or were you doing the usual and jumping to different ones? I, I, you know, every band I've been in, I've been in for a good amount of time. So that that first band I was in, I was there for a couple of years, and I'm trying to think. Um, wow, I'm trying to think what band I was in. I mean, I was sort of in a steady band when I finally met somebody who kind of broke me out of just being in that, those circles. And that was a, a sax player named Dave, Dave Mann. Okay. Um, and he wound up, he wound up, I, maybe he was subbing or something and he, and he heard, he dug what he heard. And the next thing I knew I was playing with him and his brother, Ned. Ned was a great bass player that I used to play with Mike Stern and Michelle Camillo for years. Um, and, uh, and Dave and you know I was hanging with those guys and playing with them and then they they that's how the word started to spread like Dave called Dave found out that Nelson Rangel the saxophone player he knew from when they were younger was looking for a drummer and like next thing I know Nelson calls me and never met him never heard me no audition just said oh Dave Mann says that I should use you so you want to be in my band done like I was flying to Denver to do a gig with Nelson you know what I mean so Having the right person give a, give a recommendation is the deal, as you know. And yeah, that's kind of how it started. And it came from a wedding band, right? He was subbing on yep. a wedding gig. It's a yep. trip. I've known a lot of people that have, uh, again, I think there's a mindset. And I keep driving this home because I didn't know it when I was coming up as a drummer, you know, like about what it really means to to play those kinds of, of gigs and to play, be a, a full-time musician and stuff. And, yeah. you know, um, I remember guys at Berkeley that would never lower themselves to play at wedding, you know, sure. and, yeah. and it's like, and they're playing $50 jazz gigs in a basement of, in Manhattan somewhere, some of them, uh, you know, but at the same time, you see that like with the wedding thing that led to this incredible gig that led, and it was a similar thing with me, you know, you meet these people on the gigs and then that leads to the next thing and opens up a whole other door for you. Yeah. So you yep. started, you, were you touring with, with Nelson? Yeah, it was kind of, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't touring like old school touring, but it was, you know, you go out for a weekend or you do a couple of gigs in a row. Um, and, and right around that time too, I was like, it's when I moved to Brooklyn, I lived in Brooklyn for about 12 years. And when I moved to Brooklyn, I met, you know, right at that time, I was playing with Mike Pope, the bass player, Mike Pope mm -hmm. and Tom Guarna and Mike Rusciutti and, and Tim Lefevre, and it was like a whole group, a whole bunch of people that lived in Brooklyn at that point. And I had a lot of band rehearsals at my house. Now, I, I moved into the apartment that Sal Ramundi moved out of. And okay. that was where I lived for 12 years. And in that place, I could have band rehearsals. So I had guys coming over my house literally four or five times a week. If it wasn't for, if it was just to play through somebody's original tunes, just whatever. And all that was happening at the same time. And so the same thing happened with Chuck Loeb, like Tim Lefevre was playing with Chuck Loeb and Zach Danziger was the drummer. Mm -hmm. And at that time, and I still am a ridiculous fan of his, um, you know, I don't want to say he's underrated because he's not, I mean, I, I don't even know what to say. He's, he's just super bad. Not enough people realize that. So right. anyway, props to him. Yeah, um, cutting edge so, guy, a cutting edge. Yeah, and and always, always, always has been, yeah. always has been. You know, I saw that, I saw him play. I've told uh, this story a billion times, but it, it's, it, it's, it means something to me. I saw Michelle Camillo play at McKell's when I was 16 years old and I, I was a senior in high school. And I'm pretty certain that uh, we're the same age, Zach and I. and I thought I was going to see Dave, you know, and I walk in this, that little club and there's this kid like that, you know, that's a kid, man. Yeah. And that was mind blowing. 
Because right. it wasn't like someone playing great for 16. It was like, you, you're kidding me, right? Like it was, and for me, it was a great thing to see because I was like, whoa, like, I, you know, when you come, <laughs> when you when you grow up in North Babylon, Long Island, and you're pretty good at the drums, <laughs> it's super eye-opening when you go into Manhattan and you see someone who looks like you and is playing like, Right. you know like dave or something or or you know like it's it was uh it was a cool thing to see and it was a real lesson learned not that i not that i ever thought that like oh yeah i'm good enough like that's still not the case but it was a excellent kick in the rear end mm -hmm. to, to make me be like whoa I, I have like a lot of work to do you know so yeah yeah <laughs> so i had to replace him <laughs> perfect with chuck Lowe. But that again and again, like all these, like all gigs, the gig you're on sort of usually sort of, I don't know, begets the next gig. And it's a lot of times it's a lot of similar gigs. So that was a lot of since Chuck was regarded as more of a smooth jazz guy, which, as you know, we all know, it's those are like R&B gigs. They're not really jazz gigs. But of all those gigs, Chuck's is one of the rare ones where there is jazz going on there in terms of he's a real improviser um his music wasn't just two chord jams yeah. um his his stuff was pretty sophisticated harmonically and he's a he's a bebop guitar player at heart you know what i mean so um yeah so he was an amazing guy to be around and that that dude for me made the probably the biggest difference because almost anything that I've done, I think can be tied to him somehow because of he, you know, he carried serious weight, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. You say, uh, Josh Dion, do you know Josh? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Josh and Dion. I watched the show. It was great. Oh, great. Great. Thanks. Thanks for watching it. Yeah. That we, uh, talked, uh, about Chuck with, with Josh uh -huh. and, um, the whole scene, like you're talking about with getting into that, that scene and, uh, how you said, sometimes one gig begets other gigs of that same. So you almost get like typecast in the, right? In the smooth jazz yeah. world, right? And, yeah. So, um, all right. So you're, you're playing around uh, a lot of the smooth jazz guys. And were you doing a lot of like fusion stuff as well? Yeah, I mean, I was playing with, I was playing with Timmy a, a good amount and I was playing with Pope a good amount, Yeah. you know? And I was playing at the 55 bar um, I was subbing. I was playing like Sundays with Laney Stern and Timmy. I used mm -hmm. to sub for Lionel Cordue. Okay. Um, and you know, a few times Wayne came and played with us, and playing with sometimes Lincoln would play bass. Right. So it was like a nice mix. And then around right around that time, um, we played the Blue Note with Chuck for a week, and we had Michael Brecker um, as a guest soloist. And wow. for me, that's the end. Like he, yeah. that's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm as much a Brecker fan than any drummer. Yeah. Like not like I like, I enjoy, I'm a fan of his saxophone playing as much as I am of any drummers drumming. Right. right. And so for it, for me, it was like, wow, I couldn't believe it. And, and, uh, uh, so while we were playing there around that time, the, have you heard of the band, the Funk Philharmonic? Yes. So the Funk Philharmonic was playing at La Barbat. I don't know if you remember that club. I do. And yeah, so I used to sub for the drummer, Lee Finkelstein. Mm -hmm. And, but I used to sub like twice a year. So every time you do the gig, it's like the first time you're doing it. Right. And um, Brent Carter was the lead singer at that point, who was also, had been singing with Tower of Power, right? Yep. And he, he knew that the average white band was in town and they were going to be doing auditions, which I was not called for to audition, okay. right? But Brent told those guys to come to the club to, to hang out. Okay. And I happened to be subbing that night and didn't know that they were there. Wow. All the, all the stereotypes of you never know who's watching, right? <laughs> right? So totally. I'm doing this gig. I did my homework. Um, I mean, they were a great, it's a great band. So, I mean, how could yeah. you not do your homework, right? So I did the gig. And then those guys were there. The average white man was there. And, and then the next day I got a call and the sax player was like, Hey man, Alan dug what he, what he saw last night. Um, we're holding auditions. So that he want, he's like, I think 
I think you kind of already got the gig if you want it, but he wants to play with you. He wants to see what it feels like, you know? So I was like, all right, great. Like I was, it was awesome. And I went to audition for those guys, but I went down there knowing that later that week I was playing at the Blue Note with Brecker. So it was so, not that I didn't care because I really did, but it, I, it, it was mind blowing that I was going to get a chance to play with Brecker. Right. Mm -hmm. So I went in there so relaxed. Plus again, they already saw me play without having the pressure, you know? So I went in and auditioned and I got the gig so that, you know, everything, all the stars aligned and like a lot of, in a lot of ways I was helped out by the, the, those the scenarios, you know? Yeah. So, totally. I mean, the, the, just the fact that you were subbing it, oh boy, I bet you Lee kicks himself for missing that. <laughs> I got to get Lee on the show. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but you're right. And, and what you said also, you did your homework, you showed up and you, you know, you, you were ready so that when those people were in the audience, they saw a polished guy that knew what was happening, you know, and somebody that yeah. they wanted to work with. And also, like you were saying, it's all, it's a, those are good problems to have where you have to, you know, you're on your way to an average white band uh, audition, but you're playing with Michael Brecker later that week, you know, so if you don't get it, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Great. You're doing great stuff. Cool. So things started to take off. So now you got the gig with average white band. Now, did you guys start touring or what, what happened with that? Um, um, yeah, I mean, as soon as I joined the band, that was like 2000, you know, I, I'm sorry, I, I really left out something that's really important. And it's really the first real national artist tour I ever did, which was right before was before that was with a girl named Alana Davis. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I hate that. I just I hate that I forgot that. I mean, crazy. I was messing up my order. Alana's thing came when I was playing with Chuck. I was playing a lot with Chuck. And then I got an opportunity to audition for Alana. Okay. And um, do you remember a, a bass player named Kevin Jenkins? No, I don't. He, Kevin, Kevin was playing, uh, Kevin at the time, he had done like the Maxwell gig and he, had, he was playing with Enrique Iglesias. Okay. He had, and he, he did, he was the bass player for Cindy Lauper like during the eighties, during her heyday, mm -hmm. right? So Kevin's great player, beautiful cat. And I was playing every Monday night at, at uh, Terra Blues. It was a jam night, Monday night. And I was the house drummer there with Bobby Bell. And um, um, Kevin, Kevin was playing with Alana Davis. So uh, he got me, an, he, he threw my name in the hat to audition. And the band was Kevin Jenkins, myself, and Drew Zing on guitar, okay. who was a bad, a bad dude. And, um, and, and of course, Alana. And that turned into like two years of heavy touring, heavy touring. Because yeah. she, she, she went from not, she went from like zero to a hundred because she just had a hit. She did this, she did a cover of an Ani DeFranco tune, 32 Flavors, and it was a hit. And she was immediately doing all these television shows. And Gene Lake was the drummer in her band at the oh, time. Oh yeah, I love Gene. Yep. So I had, I came in after Gene Federico Pena was the keyboard player. Mm -hmm. um, and so those guys left and then it was me and, and Drew and the, re and I, I bring it up too. one, one, she, I miss her and she's, that was an awesome experience for me. And it was a real pop gig. You know, it wasn't a smooth jazz gig. It wasn't a, it wasn't a blues gig or a jazz gig. It was like, it was a pop gig, but like it was, she was sophisticated and she was funky. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but I bring it up because I was playing, I was doing weddings, but I was in the smooth jazz world, but I was playing at Terra Blues on Monday night and having those late nights and playing, you know, and just playing some funk and rock and roll. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you can't, you can't get your hands on these, all these gigs. They're elusive if you're not out there doing it and doing one thing. It's, it's it's it can happen but it's going to be much harder yeah so yeah <clears throat> totally agreed yeah and that's that i am you know people forget your name quick when you if you go out on tour or something like that if you're not in town people there's yep. so many people in in new york and there's so many great players you know that uh if you're not in the rotation then you don't get calls anymore when you're off the road so yeah you know when you 
you got to keep plugging out and, and being out there. So a lot of now you're touring like world touring or mostly U.S. It was U.S. It was U.S. US tour? Okay. Yeah. TV dates and stuff. I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was sort of like uh, setting you up for the for the future because you've worked into some pretty, pretty awesome TV gigs. Yeah, man. We'll get there. We'll get there. I, I, but <laughs> I just want to, you know, point out the foreshadowing there. So you're, you're doing, doing the Alana gig and, uh, and you're playing, uh, got the average white band gig and now you're touring with them. And, uh, so how does that play out? Basically about five years in, I, I started playing with Patty Austin and, and so I was playing both with Patty and with AWB and right around the time I started playing with Patty and Patty's band, it was a trio. It was Patty, uh, me, Tim Lefevre on bass, acoustic bass and Mike Rusciutti. And it was straight ahead. It was like playing like real trio stuff ends with when they would plop us in the middle of orchestras. So we were touring around and playing with like major orchestras and um, she was ridiculous, man. And around that time, I started working more with this musical director named Ray Chu. And sure. so, you know, I started to, I knew five years had already gone by with AWB. And as much as I love the music and I love that they treat people, no one does it better. Yeah. Um, so it was really, really like unbelievably hard to, 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 to stop doing that gig. But I kind of made a decision that I was going to, be around town a little more um, between Ray, between Patty. Um, I got a couple of opportunities for some, some, um, um, some soundtracks like movie soundtracks wow. um, that Chuck Loeb was tied into. Um, so a lot, all that stuff started happening. And I was like, mm, I'm going to, I took a leap of faith. I had a great, amazing, steady gig playing great music. Like everything about it was perfect. And I took off. Um, but it turned out to be a good thing because I, 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 I was able to, to leave them gracefully. Um, and I started working with P Patty became like the main thing for me at that point. And I started getting more work with Ray. Um, and eventually. Now, Ray, I just want to, because we're throwing a lot of names that we know in the New York scene. So that, uh, so Ray Chu, he's the musical director at, at Showtime at the Apollo, right? Showtime at the Apollo, which actually is not happening right now, um, the television show. But for years, it went, it was going, it was played, and he was the MD. I mean, anything having to do with the Apollo, he was essentially the man. Um, and then he he went on to be the the MD for American Idol, and then and then after that, um, um, uh, excuse my ignorance here um uh, dancing with the stars okay and he's still there he's still doing dancing with the stars um and then showtime at the apollo came back for a season okay. and when they came back he was the md and and i wound up doing that doing like 13 episodes of that okay which Good. was so, a trip man I, well, that's what i was going to ask you about <laughs> um so all right, so you're out with Patty for a while. You just left the Average White Band. Uh, you're out with Patty, and you're having a blast doing this new, this new thing with the, the trio and, and all that. And uh, so, was that the next thing that you you wound up doing with Showtime? Um, or what's in between? No. Then after after the after being with Patty for a while and in and out doing Ray things here and there, I got the opportunity to sub for Sean Pelton on the Daryl Hall's television show, um, Live from Daryl's House. Cool. And which, and at that point, and still to this day, the, the band was made up of, it was basically the Hall & Oates band minus the drummer. Um, everybody lived close except for the drummer, who, uh, Mike Braun, great drummer, who was living in uh, Portland, I think. So rather than, I think, I think the deal was, I, they'd have to fly him in every time he was going to do one of these things. And this television show, it wasn't like a Hall and Oates thing. It was just Daryl. And it was, it was, it was, it wasn't like people were paying for this. I think he was probably footing the bill himself. So, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a big production at that point, at this point, it was pretty scaled down and it was just on the internet. Um, so anyway, Sean was the drummer of that gig. And I remember T-Bone 
Um, I remember being out with Average White Band. Again, you don't know who's watching you. Play, opening up for Hall & Oates, like years ago, right? And T-Bone Walk, the bass player, he dug me. He dug what he saw. And he remembered me. And years went by. Many years went by. And I get a call from T-Bone and he's like, hey, man, we do this tele we do this uh, internet show with Daryl and um, Sean can't make a gig. You want to come and, and, and do a gig? And I was like, yes, you know, and I kind of came in, I subbed and it, it went it went well and Daryl dug it. And um, so from that point on, if Sean wasn't going to make a thing that I was going to it was now I was the sub. Right. And then shortly after that, the drummer for Hall & Oates had to sub out and when he went yeah and when he went and, and the thing is he went to he came to me first and 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 said hey i might be missing some gigs if i do can you do it and he's like i'm just trying to cover my bases he was trying to do the right thing for the band and i was like yeah i could do it and um when he went finally to tell them um, before he told them that he called me, Daryl said, yeah, call that, call that guy. Uh, what's his name? But like, I don't even think he knew who I was. <laughs> I mean, he, like, I think he was like, call that guy, Brian, is that his name? <laughs> uh, so it's, and he's like, oh, it turns out he's available. So it felt, it, you know, with, they, you know, if I was an artist, I'd be the same way. You like to see someone familiar and it's not like the unknown. Right. So yeah, he heard, we played together. Yeah. You already know. It yeah. Works. Yeah. So I wound up becoming the sub uh, yeah, on that gig, kind of at that point too. And then, and then over time, over time, I wound up just getting both gigs. I just, awesome. you know, I lived, you know, I, I like, you know, at that point, it's, you know, where I lived probably helped and, you know. Where do they shoot that? Where's the, his house? Where do they well, shoot? Well, the first, like the first seven years of it was literally at his house and it's up in Paul, uh, not Pauling, like uh, Amenia, like about 20, 15 minutes north of Pauling, New York. Okay. Right. And now, then he, they bought a club. They bought what used to be the old town crier. And then they turned it into a club called Live from Daryl's house. Okay. And that's where we shot. Then they made the inside look like his house. And then okay. we've been shooting the television show there ever since. Okay. Great. So I'm going to go back a little bit because I do want to talk about Showtime at the Apollo because, yeah. <laughs> like you just said, it's crazy. I mean, you know, if anybody had seen the show, I mean, the show it, itself is, I mean, first of all, it's steeped in tradition, you know, the Apollo and everything like that, the hallowed halls, of the, but just the show itself and Showtime, particularly where the, where the crowd can boo. Oh, yeah. Right, at the <laughs> That's got to be something, man. So what, what, uh, was, yeah. so what was it like to play them? Take me to the very first time you had to play that gig. Yeah, we basically, uh, we had like a, we had like two days to rehearse all the songs that all the contestants were going to do. Right. And, you know, Ray Chu is a ridiculous taskmaster. It's crazy because like, you don't, until you see it, until you see what, like we all see what MDs go through, mm -hmm. but it's but it's a whole nother layer when you're you're dealing with musicians, but then you're dealing with amateurs and you're dealing with producers constantly, like in his ear, like while we're playing. There's always someone talking to him and giving and telling things, and and he's just dealing with it all. Uh, I couldn't imagine doing something like that. Yeah. So um, kudos to him. Um, so basically, we yeah we would we would we would we would uh, rehearse very quickly. It was like very short increments of time to play a tune, and and then Ray would basically have to tell the the contestant like, okay, you got to pick a tempo. Let's pick a tempo. Let's find it because that's what it's going to be. It's not going to be close to that tempo. It's going to be exactly this tempo. So once we do it, we're going to mark it down, and that's where it's going to be. And and so he just knew he knew what to say, how to say it, to get things done fast, you know. Um, so yeah, so we we would learn all the stuff, and then when it came time to do the show, um, it, you know, it's like it's live TV. So you know, if if the contestant messes up, too bad. Right. If we mess up, 
too bad. Right. And if we mess up and a contestant thinks they could have done better and it was our fault in the day of, days of social media, yeah, that's oh, yeah. not good. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there's like, it's like, whoa, it's like serious pressure, you know? Um, so yeah, man. And it, and it, everything just seemed to happen really, really fast. You know, like I remember being on stage and like Ray came up with what we were going to play for like the commercial breaks, like right there on stage, like minutes before. <laughs> awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So, it's so like it calling was a, off, like he's doing the commercial bumps and he's calling them off like he's at an open jam. Kind it, of like. It's, yeah, man, just like just banging stuff out really fast. And, and to the band's credit, like, and to his credit, because he, he had the guts um, and the wherewithal to know that he can trust us. So, it, it shows, it showed all of us that how much uh, um, confidence in us he has. You know, because that's his butt on the line. Yeah. When we when we blow it, <laughs> right. you know. Soldiers, so troopers, yeah, yeah. So he he's uh, yeah. So it was it was it was very fast paced, and um, and the other thing is like with the booing with the audience, we had music for that, so we have to prepare. There was a guy on the side of the stage that was controlling Pro Tools, right? So okay. he would he would hit all the count offs for all the tunes, and. Ray, Ray was like, Ray's like, if you, if the, once the horn goes off, if the people boo loud enough, you hear a siren. Once the siren goes off, we have to be ready to play. You know, we had two different playoff things for when someone's getting thrown off the stage, when the Sandman comes off and sweeps them off. Right. And sometimes like we wouldn't know what, which one we were going to play a or B like the slow one or the fast one. Because okay. he didn't want to play the same one every time, right? So we'd be sit, I'd be sitting there watching from backstage, walking on my kit in the dark, and now the crowd starts booing, and now I'm like, uh, which one is it? Are we are we doing? <laughs> are we doing A or are we doing B? Like I didn't, I don't know which one we're gonna do. And then all of a sudden I'd be like, we're gonna do B. One, two, three, four. Uh, like you're in. Wow. You know what I'm saying? And it's. Again, it's 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 not it's not that big a deal, but it is live TV, right? Yeah. So I, I want to just say one thing that 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 happened. We we were we were actually sitting there, and not not all the guests played music. Some of them jumped rope or whatever. There was all different kinds of things, magicians. But we we did we would do like nine shows in two days. So we would do we would do like nine full episodes. So it would be one o'clock in the morning and we would be finishing up an episode and it would be like, okay, bring the new crowd in. There'd be people lying down the street wow. in Harlem at 1.30 in the morning and they bring a whole new house in and they'd empty that out for every show. And we'd be playing at 2.30 in the morning. We'd be shooting a show after being there for 15 hours. You know what wow. I'm saying? Yeah. So, so um I remember it was probably like 2.30 in the morning. I had been there since like six o'clock the last morning. I was almost unconscious and I'm sitting behind my kit and there's people are performing in front of me. And the next thing I know, the, the audience is booing, but I'm zoned out and I'm not paying attention. And I'm literally almost asleep. And I remember just like, I had my head down and I picked my head up and I was like, and I, I don't know why I just picked up my sticks. I just went to grab my sticks. And as I grabbed my sticks, all of a sudden I hear one, two, three, four. And I just started, you just got to start playing, right? <laughs> it was the cat. It was the counting. Cause the dude, the people were getting booed so loud. We had to play them off and thank God for that count off. Wow. Save my life, save my life. Because wow. I was zoning out. Oh my God. I can't believe you guys <laughs> have to shoot it like that. That sounds brutal. Oh yeah, man. We did. We we would we would we were there all day and night. What did you say? Days. Nine show, nine shows in two days. I think we did nine. Yeah, it was thirteen total. No, no, seven shows. Seven shows in two days. Still, that's, and then tense, man. Yeah. Wow. And you're not yeah. on stage, right? You said you're like you're set. Is the band like backstage, or are you in a pit, or what? We're we're on stage, but in in the back. Okay. And we're spread out along the whole, the wall, so there's no depth. Everybody's the next audience, to each other. I don't think the audience can see you, right? 
Um, no, they could. And when the, when the cameras are on, like, actually, I, I actually got some great camera time on that show. It was amazing. Yeah. But I mean, it wasn't like we were never, we were never front and center. Though. Okay. We were always, always in the back. I went one time actually to the Showtime at the Apollo. I was there. I was way up in the nosebleeds and I, I can, couldn't remember it. But uh, man, that's intense. That's, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> I've done some TV stuff. I did live. I did Saturday Night Live, which is cool, but that's two songs. You know what I mean? And it's easy. And they're like far apart, and you're hanging out in the green room and drinking beer and whatever. So that's pretty. Yeah. Cool. You guys are working, man. Wow, that's that's crazy. Okay, so was that your first sort of TV uh, like house band type gig where you were yeah. in the house band? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. And then, uh, so now what's Daryl's house like? What's shooting? Uh, it's, it's, it's really great. Um, it looks, but it's also, it, it's it horrifying. Great, it's, it's horrifying at the same time. Basically, there's no rehearsals for that. Okay. And we basically, we find out what we're going to play about a week before. And we come in, we usually meet the artist, whoever the guest artist is at around, like noon and by one o'clock we start and as soon as we start we basically the md just says okay we're, we're going to do this tune okay how do you do it live is it because usually we get record versions mm -hmm. of stuff so we know the form is going to be a little different and daryl doesn't want us to us to play it like exactly like the record ever he's like do your homework but don't do too much because he wants it to be he wants it to be our version okay that day right so he wants us to honor the 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 what the artist has done but not to the point like where you and i are used to i'm used to like if i have something to learn i'm going to learn that and i'm going to play just the way they want and i'm going to assume they want the record until they tell me they want something else or if or if, if i'm given a live tape i'm going to play it like the last guy who did it because that's currently what the artist is used to. And then if I have the artist turn around and say, okay, I need, I want, you're doing what the last guy did. I need you, you know, and then great. That's what I'll do. But I want to, I want to honor that. Right. So like you, I come from a sideman mentality. And with this, it's like, Daryl doesn't want that as necessarily. He wants like, learn it, but we want to do our thing with it. Right. And then the other, the other layer here is he never wants to play it more than twice. So like he wants to talk about what we're going to do and then play. And unless there's a train wreck, don't stop. And when we get to the end, talk about whatever you want to change about what we just did. And that's it. Play it one more time and then live with it. And then also don't listen back. There's no listening back. So At what all? you're ever a hundred percent, we've never played a note in that place and then listen back to it. Not once. He just, when we get to the end of the tune, Daryl will go, hey, Pete, how's that? Or Pete, you know, the engineer in the background will go, that sounded good to me. And Daryl will be like, yeah, it felt good. Next. And usually the artist, the guest artist is like, come on, are you guys serious? <laughs> That's hilarious. It's the same way. So, Mo Moby's the same exact way. And he, we would be in the studio and he would he wouldn't want to hear the playback at all. We cut, we cut, I cut a whole record with him. He didn't listen to it once. And the, in the, you know, the, the engineer's like begging him, please come and listen, you know, to see if you want to take and all that. And, and, and any other singer, you know, because we usually want to hear the stuff back. Maybe we'd have singers and they'd be like, can I hear that back? And he would be, he'd be like, no, no, you give these people an inch, they take a mile. It was not only good, it was good enough, you know? And, wow. uh, so that's funny that those cats work that way. So, uh, but what, what's Daryl like? I mean, just to work with, he, he seems like a chill guy. He's great, man. He's great. He's, he's, uh, he's a real, uh, you know, he, him and John too, same thing. They're both, they're lovers of music and they're, they're old school, man. They're, they're real as real can be, you know? Um, they, they're, they don't tell, they're not telling any of us, like there's no direction. It's like, you guys, we hired you. You guys are pros, man. Do you think? I mean, they just assume that we're going to bring the right stuff, you know? No kidding. Um, they, no, they know that the song rules in their world, the song rules. Okay. And as long as you 
as long as you they recognize that you have that in you, any any individual flavor you want to bring, that's that's fine. It's on you. That's awesome. So as far as like the nuts and bolts of the gig, are you um, when you're on stage with them? Are you on a click? Or are you doing any with the track? It's really you're playing old school, counting them off and playing zero. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, awesome. and and no rehearsals in that band either. Like, not Daryl doesn't even come to sound check. I was just going to ask you about sound check. You don't even get the like obligatory. Wow. No, we we sound check. We sound check, and John comes to sound checks. But Daryl doesn't come to sound checks. So um, yeah, man. And like they're not, and he's not, they're not Daryl's like not a rehearsal guy. You know, like he he's I remember we played we played the grand finale of the voice. No, the grand finale of the voice, yeah, of the voice. And um, we hadn't seen each other like I think in I don't know, three or four months we hadn't played. And next thing, you know, we're like flying to California. We never got together. <laughs> we never got together once. We didn't rehearse. Nothing. Like okay. zero. Like we didn't even, it's not even like, let's figure out how we're going to play exactly three minutes and 14 seconds. What do we have to do? Like nothing. <laughs> we just showed up and like, we, we're finding out what tune we're going to play when we're there. Wow. And See, like, I would be, you know. I would be like a wreck, man. I, you know, like, especially with those kind of things, one of the things that calms my nerves is preparation, you know, knowing that I can, I can prepare and, you know, it's like, get it together. But wow, man, you're like, yep. you can't even rely on the, the click in your ear to, to keep you and you're just winging it. That's uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's also got to be pretty cool though, from a guy that's coming from your background and, and playing as long as you have, that, that's got to be uh, good to play like that, right? Free? It is, it is. I like it because there's less, there's less, I mean, you know, it can add a cool, it can add, it can, production wise, it can be great and it can sound better when you have that stuff. But when you don't, there's also a lot, there's less stress actually in many ways because there's less things that are going to go wrong. Yeah, it's just like if a microphone doesn't work, it doesn't work. You have another one, you know. But the dealing with background tracks and and it, they, they don't mess with any of that stuff, man. It's all, it's it's super old school, That's super amazing. old school. And you guys, are I doing, want. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go, go, go. I was just gonna say, and you're playing like Madison Square Garden with these. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's insane. It's insane. After all these years, so, as a matter of fact, the last gig I played was February 28th almost exactly a year ago. The last time I played the drums outside of my house and made money, it was at Madison Square Garden with those guys. <laughs> wow. Yep. My last gig was at a, at a fish place. <laughs> fish restaurant. <laughs> Yo, I wanted to tell you something about the click thing where you, the stuff can go wrong. Uh, about around the time that I was leaving the AWB, Mm -hmm. I auditioned for a, a Broadway show for a, a show called Hot Feet. Okay. And it was music of earth, wind and fire. And I was like, never in a million years did I think I was ever going to get it. But I knew that Maurice White was coming to New York to audition people. So I, I auditioned and I auditioned with, with uh, Artie Reynolds was the bass player and Keith Robinson played guitar in the band that I auditioned with. And it was like a killer, killer band. And, and we play, and just to be in the room with Maurice was unbelievable to me, right? And he chose us, he chose three of us. We were the rhythm section that got chosen for this thing, which was kind of odd in the Broadway world too, because contractors usually have their guys they call. And uh, so we, we were very lucky and very fortunate. Um, but again, being the drummer playing Earth, Wind & Fire stuff with Artie Reynolds and Keith Robinson, you have to be like pretty bad to not sound good. <laughs> with these guys right so um luck you know again luck for me and uh i remember uh we had done a bunch of rehearsals we, i was around maurice every day hours a day and playing that stuff in front of the guy who did it was 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 nerve-wracking but awesome and uh the first time we played it in public we were in a theater in dc the national theater it was like filled with celebrities and the, the 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 pit in this in that theater wasn't big enough to accommodate us, so we were in in a we were like in a like five stories up, on a different floor, right? And they had the stuff snaked snaked in, and we had TV monitors, and I remember playing, 
and we get to the last song of the first half. And on this stuff was, there was clicks, there was pre-recorded background vocals, there was all kinds of stuff going on, plus a 14-piece band, 15-piece band, right? So, but this stuff sounded ridiculous, right? And we're playing the last tune of the first half. Vivian Nixon is like the star dancer. It's like a big moment of the show and it's a house groove. And I'm playing and all of a sudden I hear silence. And now I'm like, <laughs> so I, now I'm almost immediately, I'm falling off the click and I'm, I'm staring at the, the MDs in front of me playing keys. And I see him go like this. He looks up like, oh my God, what's going on? And I'm going, kill the machine, kill the machine. Cause the, he had a big red button that he could turn off all the backing stuff, right? So he hits it, he turns it off and now we're playing still. Now I still don't hear anything. It's a silent room. There's no amplifiers. I'm encaged in glass, right? So I look down on the floor and I see that my pack fell off. <laughs> so now I'm playing the bass drum and I lean over, I pick it up, I plug back in. I'm still not out of trouble because now I don't even know where I am in the song. Because, right. <laughs> you know, just charts. It was a, it was a freaking nightmare. So when we get to the end of the tune, um, there's an intermission. So I walk out, I'm like, I gotta get with some air. I'm, I was freaking out because nothing like this had ever happened. It was smooth sailing for weeks, right? So I get in the elevator. As soon as the elevator door opens up, Maurice White is standing face to face with me. Of course. <laughs> and he goes, he leans over to me and he goes, he goes, you, 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 lost the, you, you lost the click. And I said, yep. And he goes, why? And I go, cause I mean, cause I, now that I real, I'm real thinking about it. It's cause he knew I wouldn't just lose the click. He figured there was a, there was a reason, you know? And I said, my pack, my in-ears pack fell off my belt. And he looked at me and he went, ah, and he gave me a big smile and he tapped me on the shoulder. He went, he went, this is what happens when we, when we use all this, this stuff, you know, he goes, this, this, this happens sometimes. He's like, but don't worry about it, man. Great job. And then he goes, I want to go and say hello to everybody. And he went up and I was like, my heart, I was palpitating. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. Yeah. I could imagine. Yeah. You must have felt, I mean, I, I, I know. Mm. How you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's a drag when things like that happen and it's no, no fault of your end. I had a similar situation uh, playing at a festival in New Zealand. And it was like, you know, the festival crowd thing where they're like, you play your set and then they have the next band, you know, and it's just absolute mayhem. And they, they had, I had my own mixer with the click and tracks and all this other stuff under normal circumstances. And this time all I had was a click and Moby's guitar. And that's all I could hear, you know, and I had to play a whole festival and Moby's uh, guitar playing isn't always that it's not like he's always playing the part. He kind of drops in and out, you know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. uh, so I, yeah, I had to figure that one out, man. But there you go. You're in front of all these crazy people. And then, but you, like you said, that when the technology cuts out, if it's just you playing, right, you'll be fine. But when all these other things, it adds this whole other element of crap. Wow, yeah, that's a trip, man. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. So what, um, okay, so now we're up to what you were doing before the pandemic hit, which was playing at Madison Square Garden with Hall & Oates. So what, what have you been doing since uh, since everything went away? I've I've been I've been recording in the house. Um, I started doing company, right? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Back of, the back, bus, of the bus. back of the bus productions. Back of the drum bus, tracks, man. baby. Remote drum tracks. I, cool. I, you know, the, the truth is I've been doing I've been doing this. I've been doing the remote drum thing for 17 years. I started doing it really early in the game, I think. Um, again, because of Chuck Loeb. Um, I remember doing a session when, when, when Avid came out with, at the time, I think they were just called Digidesign. They came out with the, the ability to record at 192, mm -hmm. right? Now, this is a long time ago. Um, they hired, they hired uh, Chuck to, to record music. At, we did it up at Bear Tracks. To record music at 44, at 96, at 192, and a two inch tape machine. So we could really, they could really A, B. And we had the same guys on the same year, the same day. And we just kept playing over and over again, right? Wow. Um, 
And the payment involved with that was gear. They did your design, gave us a piece of gear. And that's what got me in. I had no money, but I got an M-Box out of it. Yeah. Right? So when I got, yeah. So when I got the M-Box and then they used, they used the recording we did at like a, an AES show or something. And it was cool. It was Chuck and me and Mark Egan played bass and Andy Snitzer played sax. It was a good band. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the M-Box only has two inputs, but I was like, I got the M-Box. And then Chuck was like, he was like, man, you know, plug two mics in. He goes, it's like, people, I'm sick of programming. You should just think about this. He goes, you should do it. And I started playing around with just two mics. And then I was like, man, and I got a double O2. And ever since, man, I've played on like so many things for him. So many remote sessions, basically because of Chuck. But he was the guy that had the foresight to say, hey, man, record your drums. It's going to be more expensive for you because you need more inputs. Right. Um, but just jump on it. Do it. And I'm 17 years in. But now the funny thing is the pandemic hits and it's really, I don't know, it didn't make sense to me. But I'm, I've become not just a little more like way more busy with the remote session thing now than before this pandemic. And I always had, you know, I'm in and out, I'm on the road, I'm home, and I always have something to do for somebody. It's, it's been good, I've been lucky, but now it's like, it's, it's, it's virtually every day. It's crazy. Wow, that's great. And are you yeah. basically just going off of word of mouth or do you use a certain, how do they find Word you? of mouth. Word, word, of mouth. word of mouth, man. I mean, you know, part of it is because I've been doing it this long, you know, I have enough, enough guys that I work with, like uh, for every, for every one person that says, Hey, can you do a drum track for me? There's, I have someone else that is like a keyboard player that produces for multiple artists. Right. You know, and, and the other thing I'll say is the lion's share of what I do here is not on they're not like signed artists they're not you know records in that way they're not like big budgets or anything occasionally i get some some nice stuff but um money wise but it's it's more volume it's mm -hmm. more volume um but yeah so yeah i think the key is to 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 get with get with somebody or a few people that don't just record their own music they actually have a a, a hand in who else is going to play on something Right, right. So um, back to those days that you were talking about in the early days of uh, the M-Box, because I got on it about around that same time, too. I had a friend that was into uh, into sound stuff, and he could help me, you know, set up all the chords and stuff and plug it all in yeah. the right place. And, and he knew the way to go about it. And I think I, I was at the, the 1814 remember that the firewire 1814 it had four inputs yeah. instead of two but it was still m audio yeah but um getting back into it back then i think was great for these days because it's become such a normal thing where it's almost yep. like uh people almost expect you to have a, a home recording gig you know yep. set up so what are you running now uh, as far as your daw and all that stuff i have uh i have a uh an an avid hdio um, and I use, I mean, my, my setup is very simple. Um, actually I just got another eight channels, uh, card for this HD IO. So now I have 16 inputs. Um, I have, was using eight for all these years up until like two weeks ago, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I have this HD IO really, it's nothing more than a converter. There's no mic present. There's nothing. There isn't even a volume knob on this thing. So my system is set up. It's kind of it's becoming expensive because it's, it, it's, it's higher quality and I love it, but yeah, everything has to be bought separately. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, so HDIO conversion. And um, right now I just have, you know, a, a bunch of mic pre's. I have uh, an API lunchbox with some API mic pre's and a couple of Rupert Neve um, mic pre's. And I have four, uh, those blue Focusrite uh -huh. ISA, Mike Freeze, and um, yeah, man, some Genelic monitors, and that's about it. And then I, I recently got a got a I had gotten a deal with um, Biodynamic microphones, which is really really great, man. And I'm using uh, 
these M160s, they look, you've probably seen them. They look like, it looks like a miniature 58. Mm-hmm. Looks like the, it looks like a 58 microphone, oh, yeah. but small. And those are the, they're ribbon mics. And those are the mics that were used for uh, when the levee breaks. Okay. Those are the mics that were hung over Bonham's kit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the deal with them that's cool is like, I don't have, I, I'm in the basement. So my ceilings are not, they're not high. And the, the deal with most ribbon mics is they're figure eight. So they get, they're going to record what's in front of them and what's behind them. Mm-hmm. So if you have a nice sounding room, it's beautiful to use ribbons yeah. when you don't have a great room. It's kind of counterproductive, yeah. but with the, with these, they're not figure eight. They're, 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 they're hypercardioid. So they, they only record what you point them at. So you get the flavor of the ribbon ribbon without having to pick up the back end. So it's been really cool, man. Really, really nice. nice. Yeah. Um, so I also noticed you've been doing a, a little more drum video stuff. Yeah, like solo. Yeah, man, I decided to jump in. It's really not like me. It's it was a, that's the one of the biggest leaps of faith ever. <laughs> it's well, I I noticed it. That you you know because I would never see. I think we've been Facebook friends for a while, and I would never see much from you. And then all of a sudden, I would see in these these great videos of you like doing some soloing and stuff like that. Are you crazy? Uh, are you doing the YouTube thing and all that? You got a YouTube? I thing? don't. I don't. Okay. I don't. I just started. Did I did it for for Instagram and Facebook, and I'm I'm really only using, like I'm only I'm utilizing whatever I happen to be working on. So none of that stuff is made just for that. Like it's like it's just tracks that I happen to be recording. But I can't um, I can't expect like a a drum cover of the new Taylor Swift song from you. Yeah, man. So yeah, that's, I will say this though, I have to come clean. Um, some of them are actual videos of when I'm actually re- recording the track. Sometimes though, cause this whole camera thing, it gets on my nerves. Not like, not that I'm not used to being in front of a camera. I am, but if it doesn't have to be there, it's not helping matters. And I, I, I want to be all in and someone's giving me money to pay, play on their recording. And, and so what I, Oftentimes what I do is I record the track. I, I make sure the artist is happy with it. And then I go back and I just re-record myself with the phone, That's you know, still idea. through Pro Tools. Yeah, because I want, I, it's going to take, it's going to take something away. I may luck out sometimes and sound okay, but I don't know. I, I feel like I owe it to them to not do that. Well, it's you know a distraction. It's another distraction, yeah. isn't it? Because you're thinking about that. I know what I was trying to do. Uh, that same vibe and then you just have this other thing to think about you know like I if I was in the the verse or something and it was like I got to stop the session now not only do I have to stop my recording session I got to turn off the camera and I got to go back and start another video and all that and it's just occupies too much bandwidth in my head when like you said you're supposed to be laying down a drum track right yeah not mugging for the camera but um, But now and they're also at but it's becoming the new thing now that people are expecting that you send them video footage <laughs> so uh, i mean i'm rolling with it it is what it is i mean i have to say if i was if i you know when i was in high school if someone said yo you want to see a video of Vinny playing on the gino vanelli record i would be like of course like why would you not want to see it right but to have to do that is kind of a drag for me but i mean i do it i'm not gonna i don't want to i'm not gonna I'm just going to roll with it. But, uh, but what I do, usually what I'll try to find out from the artist is, look, if you want me to videotape it, me doing it, it's fine. But if I get a good take and I'm three quarters of the way through your tune and I, I make a boneheaded mistake, I'm not doing the whole song over. If it feels really good, I want to punch. And now if you, your video is going to stop me from giving you a great track, or having me go back and spend another hour perhaps because I can't get from the beginning to the end of the tune. I mean, obviously everybody tries to get from the beginning to the end. I I always do, but you could get a really good take and get most of the way through. And then you're going to really throw it out because of a camera. So everybody's, they've been cool about it. Everybody's been like, no, it's not like if we're going to use your video footage, it's, it's the cameras on you the whole time, just stop it and start it again and just send us pieces of video. It's all good. So, yeah, that's awesome. These are the things we we have to deal with these days. Yeah. So what uh, what do you think 
uh, is going to happen when this whole thing is over? Do you have things planned or are you just going to play it by ear? I mean, I know that's kind of none of us really knows, but yeah. I mean, I'm just going to hope I'm going to hope that I'm hoping that maybe come September work's going to start, you know, shows are going to come back. Um, you know, I mean, as of right now, I'm, we're supposed to go out at the end of August With into September. Out? Yeah, we have a tour planned. Um, so that I obviously I have no idea if it's really going to happen. But I mean, as of right now, it looks like it's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, if, it, if the plane comes back, great. If it doesn't, then, you know, I got to hope that this uh, little run I have going on with the recording is going to keep me afloat. And then, you know, and again, I'm, I'm always going to do I'm going to play whenever I can, whether it's in a club or a club date, you know, whatever. I mean, I have gigs. I'm, I'm still I'm still in a, in, a, in a band. I still play with with, you know, a few bands, actually. I just haven't played in a year. <laughs> right <laughs> so um yeah man hopefully yeah hopefully come fall we'll, we can be playing again yeah i'm with you there well man i can't thank you enough for doing this it's i could talk to huh. you forever but you know they limit limit me to uh it was under an hour not under an hour uh under an hour and a half ah, i'm cool. making this up no i noticed that there's some of these things it's funny these algorithm things with like some of the videos how like youtube likes longer videos it appears but instagram you can't put longer videos so i'm just trying to manage all this stuff <laughs> all right you gave us all kinds of good info and great stories and i'm definitely going to edit a bunch of them and uh send it to to you and uh and post a bunch of things because you gave us like a treasure trove of uh <laughs> and behind the scenes uh and all of that so thanks again for for doing anything else that you want to tell us about before we go no man i'm good I think we covered, yeah, I think we covered quite a bit. Cool. All right, Brian. Well, where can they, we find you? Uh, Instagram, right? Brian Dundrum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Facebook? Or are you not so much on yeah. the Facebook? No, I am. I am. I don't know. Boy, I don't even know what it's called. What it's, what my, I don't I'm even know what it's called. <laughs> yeah, I'm having a hard time tagging <laughs> you anytime I try to tag your, your drummer page. So I don't know what. That, that thing doesn't even, yeah, I don't even, that doesn't even work. I mean, okay. it, maybe it works. I don't even see it, but usually I, I know maybe, you know, better than me when I post things, I post it, I post stuff on Instagram and then turn on the Facebook thing that it, it attaches to Facebook. So. Right. so it's posting it to your, your personal. Uh, yes. Page is what's yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, man, I can't think. And again, man, you, you, uh, you're an awful humble cat for as much as you've done, because I was trying to remember all the, to put together the people that you played with and you you don't even mention like some of these people like patty austin and average white band and stuff you're just you're very humble for all the stuff <laughs> man. you could have a much longer label that <laughs> <laughs> cool man. but yeah i appreciate it again and everybody needs to go check out brian dunn uh, playing drums and uh and we'll get him on a taylor swift cover uh soon i'm going to talk him into doing a youtube cover of uh miley cyrus record Thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, Brian. Take care. All right, man. Thanks All for right, having me, man. Later. Thank you.